Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. I'm Ben Eshmade and on this week's Archive Edition, we travel back into our minds, learning more about our relationship to music and sound from three leading electronic artists or collectives, James Holden, Mira Kallax and The Light Surgeons. Understanding this stuff, it's quite intangible how your brain works. And I started to really become absorbed by the sound of the machine and I was amazed. It was so loud. It was so interesting. Let's start back in March 2013 when you could have been in the audience for Consciousness, a performance lecture by Marcus de Saltoy featuring music by James Holden and visuals by one of us. In the lead up to the concert lecture, I met with James Holden, DJ, electronic artist and producer in the catacombs of the Barbican. I asked him about how the preparations for the evening were going. We're sort of, Marcus is explaining consciousness and it's, it's a field that's quite counterintuitive or you know, different to how people expect. The experience of living in your brain doesn't quite equip you to know what your brain's, how it works. It's an area where very recent advances in the sort of mechanical science, the MRI machine or whatever, have opened up doors and advances in computing are opening up doors at the moment this billion euro brain simulation project that's just been announced and uh, it changes your understanding of so much of, of everyday life things in society things in art everything it's it touches everything and so I sort of feel like people are going to come out of the lecture questioning a lot about you know it's going to echo through their lives afterwards so it's exciting in that respect you mentioned the word lecture but i think it's anything but the dry the dry idea of a, of a, of a university lecture <laughs> yes i suppose yeah i mean i i enjoy watching ted talks so I, I don't think of a lecture as being dry so sort of reality tv's drier in a way sort of, i don't know why um with the visual element and experiments on stage and stuff that it's going to be fun but also with these elements of where we're trying to, you know, entrance people with light and sound. That's, I mean, it's an experiment, basically. I, I think, let's go into more detail about what you're bringing to, the, to this. I mean, I'm soundtracking the whole thing. So the background music is all serving the same purpose as the live performance in the middle of it. I started researching about this, and there's been a lot of experimenting that's found that sound and light input can affect the brain I mean, you'd expect that because they're wired together. But a repeated rhythmic tone at the right frequency will cause your brain to have more 
more communication at that frequency going on, mm. we already knew that different states of mind, being very alert and you know, adrenaline-y is a beta state, slightly higher frequency. When you're concentrated or meditating, a slower frequency is more predominant. And when you're completely asleep, there's much less of those high frequencies and it's all very slow stuff going on in the brain. But people have found that these audio inputs can actually drag someone into another brain state. This isn't something very drastic. It's not like everybody is going to feel like they've necked some acid or something. It's, it's quite a subtle difference. And it's something we've all probably already experienced. The, the experience of zoning out of everything around them and concentrating. That is actually, when you're concentrated on, say, a visual cue, your brain creates alpha frequency waves in your auditory and sensory cortexes suppressing those inputs so that you can focus on what you want to focus on you know we've evolved that it's useful mm. um so the experience of being put in a trance by music is probably something most people have already felt it's mm. it's a natural thing but when it's done to the maximum you know we're going to try and make it as powerful as we can within the confines of the barbican and so you know the, these experiences the re research about it is quite mind-blowing stuff that when uh, musicians are playing they show more connectivity across their whole brain and my my partner described the experience because I'm she accompanies me when I'm DJing so she's standing there for three hours on her own sometimes and she says that she you know although it's on the surface it could be quite a lonely boring experience being alone in a foreign country listening to music you've heard before <laughs> from your stupid boyfriend <laughs> but she had she feels like she has ideas in that time that the sort of being engrossed in music and not much other input things are joining up she's connecting dots having insights that are and that's a very common thing that's reported by people who are put into an alpha brain state some of the experiments have shown people having out-of-body experiences all kinds of bizarre stuff but those are usually much more strong stimuli than we're allowed to present in the Barbican. We can't flash a strobe in everyone's face for half an hour for health and safety reasons and, you know, pleasure reasons. There is a, there's a whole world of wacky research on this. And I mean, I found one, the first paper I found on Google, I thought this is really good. It's on the Stanford Uni website. It seems really serious. Until I looked at the front cover and it had a, a smiley, like acid smiley face on it. <laughs> Maybe this isn't the most academic work. <laughs> so, but there's a, the advent of LSD is, does encourage neuroplasticity and there is research on it. It's unfortunately st stigmatized by hippies that stops it being researched for its medical uses but something Marcus mentions in in the lecture is that to understand the brain looking at when we lose consciousness is a really good way of understanding what consciousness is and mm. there's some experiments 
that he took part in measuring the brain while he was asleep, things like that. Whereas, you know, you can see by seeing the change in the system, you can understand a bit more about the and sort of drugs. I mean, there's quite a lot of psychotropic art from that period as well of flashing lights and even op art, you know, looking at Bridget Riley for long enough is a bit trancy <laughs> and all that stuff that does help you understand your brain. I think if you, yeah, all, all those experiences, they're showing you, a, you know, another facet of your brain through showing when part of it is disabled. Most drugs are just disabling sections of the brain when they work. So, Do you think, obviously you're, you're creating new music for this, but do you think it will have a big impact in a way, yeah, but some of the other research I've, uh, I've come across, I met this guy called Vincent Walsh. Joanna set up a meeting, and he's a, a neuroscientist and a psychologist. I'm not quite sure of his job title. I sort of put that question, you know, is there anything you can tell me from research that will make, you know, give me superpowers in music? And he sort of laughed at me, and no, as a musician you already know more than the scientists. You've been intuiting your way through it your whole life and you're standing on the shoulders of millennia of musicians who've done the same. Of course, you know, we're already at the optimum solutions. But there are, there's another thing, um, an experiment that was written up in Wired. They'd put two duetting guitarists playing different parts in EEG machines and they'd found that the followers' brainwaves matched exactly the leader's. So that when people are participating in music together, their brainwaves are in sync to some extent. It's this tele telepathic, well, it's not telepathic, but it's, it's quite a special link And that when your people are playing music together, they're all in a similar brain state. But then if you think about it, when people are dancing in a club, that's a kind of participation in the music. They're as engrossed in it as the musician. That sort of elevates the club version of going to listen to music. Even being in the dance music world, you have a feeling that it's this sort of poor cousin of real music or something. But this sort of strongly experiential aspect of it and participatory it sort of elevates it above sort of sitting in a dry concert venue listening to something very intellectual. And it's this whole, all this research has just reaffirmed my faith in you know, music that you feel, that you join in in, as being a, you know, a great thing. And, yeah, it's given me lots of ideas, both about participation and, you know, how trying crazy things in clubs, where that's, it really is the perfect environment for experimenting with brainwaves. So, yeah, so it's given me a few plans for the future, but also just sort of faith in this stuff. And, yeah, I can look at snooty music snobs with a fresh sense of righteousness. <laughs> it sounds like it's it's entertaining, but also kind of strangely enjoyable or guiltily enjoyable maybe I'm not sure yeah I think that's the the aim is understanding this stuff it's quite intangible how your brain works and sort of how things follow on from how it works and the more it takes a while to sink in and I think you want people to go away not with a sort of they've learnt all about it but their mind is now open to figure it out themselves afterwards so that's I think that's kind of the most of the pleasure in it, in a way. Um, 
maybe it would be, since I was talking about the brainwave entrainment, it would be a good idea to play the uh, difference tones, which is the sort of classic sound used in brainwave entrainment experiments. Um, so I've prepared one. It's if you play two sine waves of a very close frequency together, when they superimpose, alternate between reinforcing and cancelling out. So you get a sort of throbbing effect. And that is enough of a sort of pulse for your ears to feed into your brain and to change your brain waves. So the one I've prepared actually goes through a range of frequencies. You can hear the pulsing slowing down and speeding up, but I thought that's a, a better way to illustrate that effect. It's probably not long enough to actually change your brain state through listening to it. So no one needs to worry and you can carry on driving or operating heavy machinery. <laughs> As we travel back across the brain synapses, we find ourselves further back in the venue's collected memory. In 2011, the project Faster Than Sound Brainwaves came to Wilton's Music Hall, presented by The Barbican. This was an evening of music inspired by the sounds and the physical presence of an MRI scanner. Composer Mirak Alex and Anna Meredith presented music which blended acoustic and electronic sounds to respond to the emotional experience of undergoing a brain scan. Alongside this, design studio Luke PH created a beautiful multimedia installation called Neural Nest. So back in 2011, I caught up with Mira Kallax in a dusty museum in London to find out how she got connected to this project in the first place. M MRI machine, if I got it right, is that, that, that scans your brain? It does. So it's a magnetic resonance imaging machine. And it does. It effectively slices up your brain in very fine detail. Um, and probably most people have seen them in Woody Allen movies. Uh, they're the lovely big white round things that you sort of get zooted in. And they look very futuristic. How, how does that then translate into music? The machines um, make this extraordinary sound. They're very loud. They're between 90 and 110 decibels. So they are phenomenally loud. It's like sticking your head in a jet engine. Um, and the reason is because of how the magnet plates work. It, it makes this very loud sound that they can't reduce. So it has this very loud sound. As it scans through your brain or any other part of your body, the different, I'm speaking in layman's terms, obviously, as you can tell, the different sequences of slicing, the different depths, create a different sound. And the sound has, um, it's obviously very rhythmic, but it also has pitch in it. I think the other thing as well, which um, which must obviously come into play, is, is the emotional experience. Because obviously, when you you're only, you're only going to encounter this machine, unfortunately, at, at stressful times in your life. Yeah, I think for me, for me, it's very much that situation. Obviously, uh, particularly in America, they use them uh, much more liberally. So, if you're in a little car accident, you may have a scan for your back or your knee. Or um, in this country, we're a little bit more precious on the MRI scanning and um, quite often it is people the obvious one is is the brain it's the only um, piece of technology that allows doctors to see see your brain very clearly and um, I 
if I'm going to go now, I'm really going to go. So I had this experience. Um, the first one was about eight or nine years ago. I had a potential brain tumor. So, um, and I had a long wait uh, on the NHS. And when I went for the scan, nobody had warned me about the sound. And what they do is they tell you to bring a CD in. Now, the reason they do that is obviously a comfort factor. So I took my CD in and it was an electronic album. And uh, some machines, they have headphones, some machines, they just have the speakers in the machine. Mine was a speaker, speaker version. Um, so you get strapped in, your neck's held in a brace. Before you go into the room, you have to strip yourself of all metal, so jewelry, anything like that. Very particular about your clothing, you have a little locker. It's a whole ritual to get into the machine. Now, obviously, if there's any metal in the room, it can be sucked into the machine, which will break the machine, which can cost thousands of pounds to repair, let alone the time the machine is off. So it's, they're quite, you know, they're very fervent about this. They're really drilling this into you. They strap you in and you sort of zoot along nicely. And, you know, then they, you hear this little thing. The operator's in another room and they speak to you over the the um, speakers saying we're about to start cd starts great and then came the machine now the machine completely swallowed my cd and being electronic basically all i could occasionally hear was some hi-hats now i started to really become absorbed by the sound of the machine and i was amazed it was so loud it was so interesting and it was lovely but of course very mixed emotions i was there Part of me is thinking someone's going to run in the room and go, it's golf ball in your brain, you're about to die. So it's a lot of anxiety even getting to that point of being in the machine. So very mixed emotions, very mixed feelings. And yet I sort of, I probably, I had seen this machine a lot in films. To me, it's the most futuristic beautiful looking thing and it sounded amazing and yet of course I was also filled with anxiety and fear I kind of fell in love with the machine there's no other way to put it um so very I, I think I fell in love with with what it could do as well as what it sounded like and the experience although it's it's kind of horrible if you move they have to stop the scan again so you're very scared to you're thinking am I moving am I you know it's very strange and then the sequence ends and all the music comes flooding back in. And then you hear the little voice saying, are you okay? We're about to start sequence two. And then off it goes and it sounds different. So that's the experience of being in there. And it, it's very hard to express in words, of course. So, so you, are you going to try and capture that? Well, about two and a half years ago, I had another potential brain tumour. Um, lucky me. This time I went in armed with, with very different music because the, the first scan had, had had a big impact on me for obvious medical and emotional reasons, but also sonically. So the second time I went in, um, I took some string quartet music. I 
thought that strings would sound beautiful because they would because everything else is rhythmic and that the strings would sort of come in and out of focus. Now, we've written the pieces because we actually performed this on and we worked on this as a residency project last September. So September 2010 and um When I came to approach the piece, it's very much what I did. The piece is very much this almost perfect, well, my version of perfect, pastoral string quartet that kind of constantly gets sucked in and out of the machine. Now, I've processed a lot of the machine. So the machine sounds coming from my computer. Um, the original machine sounds are recorded um, at London College, at London University. So it was um, Vincent's own, Professor Vincent's Walsh's own um, lab. Um, but I've, I've messed with the machine sound and I've created something other. I was struck by the beauty of the machine. Speaking to other people who've gone in for brain scans, some of them have been brutalized and horrified and really felt alienated and invaded. It's just that I happen to see this thing as something beautiful. So I think in creating this piece, I've tried to bring out the beauty of the actual machine and this this experience of the strings coming really back into focus in between sequences and then being sucked away. And I think when I said earlier that I fell in love with the machine, I think I fell in love with this. This machine does save lives and it's so unique. It's so extraordinary. It allows the operator and the doctors to actually see inside you in such detail, such immense detail. The first brain scan I bought my brain um, scans and the second one I did the same so I have all these lovely photos of my brain and, and that was so exciting to, for me someone who's into technology it's amazing to have pictures of your brain of course I'm luck I'm a lucky person they found no tumor on both occasions so at this immense relief probably once again sort of um, increases my sort of it's kind of reverence so it's probably the correct word for this technology I wrote two separate pieces she it was very interesting she went along to the recording and heard the machine for the first time of course she had no emotional attachment or journey um, and she really uh, was struck by the fact that it sounded like birds and her piece is actually called Chorale and I think it's an amazing piece it's very very different to mine and she's really really focused on the sound as something other so it, it sounds like an aviary like an explosion of an aviary something really organic which is quite interesting because obviously it's it's so inorganic um, in its making and then we worked on a, another piece together called Tyne it's T-I-N-E and that very much does not use the sounds of the machines And it's very much based um, on this idea of small world network or the six degrees of separation, which is how most people know it. And we worked very much in this um, quite conceptually for both of us. And we don't tend to write system music, either of us. But we worked on it in a week and we approached it and created a load of rules and created a system. I think the reason being because we never do that as artists in our own right. We were sort of We looked to challenge ourselves in a different way. And it seemed that everything the professor was saying, you know, was all the system-based. 
And when we first went to meet him, I'm backtracking slightly, the one thing that I was absolutely adamant, I wanted to do this with a string quartet. I think because of my personal experience. When I said, oh, you know, I'm very open, but um, the thing I really want is a string quartet, um, he told myself and Anna that a string quartet is the perfect relationship because it's four people make six relationships. So it directly links to a lot of his research work and in fact he'd done a lot of uh, work I think at Trinity or one of the other um, music colleges about string quartets bizarrely so there was this link instantly and um, so we went down that road this kind of small world world network um, road how messages move in the brain Um, and did did you find it, I can imagine you did, a very emotional experience when you heard it performed for the first time? I think it was actually very cathartic because obviously I'm being quite glib, but these were very difficult periods um, in my life, as it would be for anyone, because you kind of know that you're not there unless there's a potential. So as much as someone may say it's a very small chance or you've convinced yourself it's a small chance, you also know you're not there for fun. You are there because there could be something in there. I think to make something that I think is beautiful, whether anyone else does or not, is is almost irrelevant in this case because I've made something beautiful out of what were long periods uh, of difficulty because it's not just the hour that you're in the machine it's the build-up to the machine to the reason for being there and I think probably selfishly helped me it's also the reason why I really asked to be on the project when I heard about it because it really meant something to me this mixture I really wanted to give people who've never been in the machine a, a sense of that overwhelming sonic explosion in your head so it's been amazing to hear from people who haven't been there in that situation. I think probably what's touched me more is speaking to people who have, particularly people who had very bad experiences. It can be very alienating. You can feel like you're just being thrown to the machine. And it, it, can, it, it seems, my experience wasn't brutal, but for other people it has been very brutal. And it's been amazing to see people actually come up and put their demons to rest a sound that they couldn't bear to hear they've kind of seen the beauty in it and that's that's wonderful as a composer because this isn't just something completely abstract this this is, has something very real world attached to it it's made me very happy that wasn't my aim I, I wasn't trying to make those feel, people feel better because I don't know if I can it's, it's a lovely sidebar that it seems for some people it's been a beautiful experience when their original experience was so awful. And of course, um, as a human being, that makes me feel great. Maybe more than as a composer, as a human, then it's, it's lovely to think I might have helped someone see something differently because that's all it is.
Lastly, on this podcast, we remember one of the Barbican's most ambitious performances. The question they posed, what's it like to experience everything at once? In the intriguingly titled Super Everything, East London Collective Light Surgeons presented a kaleidoscopic filmic journey in the Hackney Empire, and this was in 2011. This voyage of discovery used Malaysia as the starting point, but then expanded telescopically to reveal themes including religion, consumerism, politics, environmental decay, technology, storytelling, beautification and food. The Light Surgeons and members of the Heritage Orchestra performed live alongside Malaysian musician N.G. Korgwan, a man who plays everything from theremin to fold-up bicycle. At the time of the concert, the Light Surgeons' Chris Allen enlightened me about the performance. We were invited um, to go and do a, a sort of research trip, which was, um, you know, r- you know, quite rare to kind of get the opportunity to just go and visit somewhere like Malaysia without expressively having to make anything while we were there. And we went to see a lot of different people kind of dealing with different issues, like notes and information. And at that point, I started doing more reading and research into the sort of history of Malaysia and particularly kind of, you know, our colonial kind of involvement in Malaysia as a country and how it came about and, you know, its history. And I came across a writer to kind of divide the population. And in Malaysia, it's a, it's a, a Muslim country and uh, has an Islamic main religion is Islam, but... Um, it has a very large Indian population and a lot of Hindu. It has a very large Chinese population too. So it's sort of always had this very interesting kind of cultural makeup. And, and then in the indigenous people who were there kind of pre-all of that are, are kind of very animistic and it's got some of the most ancient sort of tribal rainforests in the world. And it sort of borders Borneo and these amazing landscape and country. So it's, it's sort of such a rich place to sort of make something. That's why it kind of became such a sort of wide and interesting project and has a title which reflects uh, that, basically. You know, human beings are essentially, we're all the same. We have the same instincts, we have the same impulses. Um, we're just conditioned differently. Ritual was the one thing that people possessed when they arrived here. Uh, to get it, to continue to have a sense uh, of where they come from. We're superstitious, but we also have a very deep sense of, of faith, and we're very, very rooted in in um, in, in the land. And the land has has been uh, the land is you know it's animistic, pre-Hindu, pre-Islam. Um, it was animist, and I think a lot of us still carry that with us, whether we come from this land or not. I mean, you just you you, you embrace it. You start having a specific way of looking at life from the environment around you. The whole performance and piece is sort of woven together out of three main interviews. One with a, a writer called Edin Koo, who are particularly interested in um, the tradition of Wayan Kulit, which is the shadow puppet theatre. And so, and he's someone who's worked sort of politically to save Wayan Kulit from certain governmental kind of interference over certain rituals that surround it. There's a lot of animistic sort of belief around um, wine Kulet and he had lots to say about Malaysia's politics and he took us to um, Kelantan, which is this northern province on the border with Thailand and we went and filmed and went to a wine Kulet performance and that features also in the piece. Um, so he's one of the major voices. There's a woman called Bernice 
Chowdhury, who's a sort of um, poet, filmmaker, actress, and quite well known in the art scene in um, Kuala Lumpur. And she's done a lot of work around identity and her own family history and stuff. Um, and then another woman, a young woman, who's called um, Cameron Nisa. And she's from a organization called the Malaysian Youth Climate Justice Network. And they're basically, she's like an environmentalist. And so she's got a very interesting perspective on Malaysia's kind of environmental kind of challenges, basically. Practices, like traditions. Tradition? Culture? Religions? Who's your parents? Race is like... Mm, Different skin colour, different culture background, different language, multiracial ethnicity. What is your race list? Malay, Tick, Chinese, Tick, Indian. And the filmmaking side of it was, was a challenge. I mean, we only had five weeks in total, I think, to do a lot of the production, and that included um, working with two large kind of musical collaborators. One was the, uh, a group of gamelan musicians called Rhythm and Bronze. And then another group called Hands Percussion, who are quite a well-known and established Chinese percussion group. Uh, and that material kind of is edited and sampled and used in the piece. I mean, the nice thing about performance and doing something live is, you know, the piece develops over time as well. So, you know, we did the final performance that we showed the piece originally was in September in um, 2011. Um, to an audience in Kuala Lumpur and then since then we've toured it to India last year we did it in India in February and then we took it to New Zealand and, uh, and the US we've, we've shown it in Houston and Texas and already the piece has changed and developed and we've started we, we've changed things about the structure we've added new pieces the music's being developed for so this performance we're doing with the Barbican we're really excited to be working with the Heritage Orchestra or members of the Heritage Orchestra so we're making new elements to it all the time. And, you know, obviously the political situation changes in, in a country like Malaysia. They have an election approaching. So there's this sort of the, the opportunity to kind of go back and, and change things, add things. And then the whole way it's presented and performed is very not like normal film and cinema. It's, it's, it's layered. We use three different video projections. We use a sort of theatrical gauze, which covers the front of the stage. So the sort of performers and the musicians are sort of inside the film in a way. And it's, it's very layered and sort of multi-layered. And, and basically, you know, we use a combination of split screen and motion graphics and, and kind of ways of masking the material to sort of blend it together into this sort of very uh, kaleidoscopic uh, 3D theatrical uh, presentation, which is quite unique. I mean, we've been developing this approach to our work for over 10 years now. And I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's really come a long way. One work and you know hopefully it will provoke a lot of people to ask kind of questions about why more work like this isn't being made and, and get more people out there kind of thinking about filmmaking journalism music production and the sort of integration of different disciplines to create 
film and and, and media that that can truly comment on the world in a, in a, in, a, in a unique way. And I think people, you know, we all live in a in a world of individualism and kind of our iPhone or our computer or our, you know internet screen. And people want to have group experiences. For thousands of years, we've all kind of participated in going out and telling stories and witnessing stories and I think this is the beginning, the dawn of an era where, you know, electronic media can actually bring people together in a really amazing way, you know, and, and we think this is the beginning of something, you know, we, we're really excited about the prospect of more audience participation, more sort of open source film projects, more things that allow groups of people to come together to tell group stories that maybe you make us think about our society differently because I think art should transform society and we do have lofty ideals basically and we really hope people come and and take you know take something from this because i think it is it's more than just sort of music and pictures basically the function of art for me is to heal because art has to move you you have to create something that is a mirror of society but also of yourself Thanks to Chris for speaking to us. I hope you enjoyed this voyage into the outer reaches of consciousness, connectivity, and well, ending with an explosion of everything. I'm Ben Eshmade. Thanks for listening to this archive edition of Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast, here to inspire more people to discover and love the arts with weekly episodes of archive finds and theme series. Subscribe to Nothing Concrete on Acast, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you can, leave us a review to help us get the word out. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.